Good morning and welcome. My name is Brian from Valleytown Church, and it's wonderful to be studying God's Word with you today. Last week, Joe Carter ended up preaching from Genesis chapter 27, this passage in which Isaac blesses his sons Jacob and Esau. And there's a lot going on in that story, and Joe absolutely unpacked it. Uh, but I want to today extend that story and look at a, a theme regarding faith and knowledge, uh, where we'll kind of use that story and other scriptures to try to illuminate how do these two things relate. Right a while back, we did look at the idea that faith is more than just simply uh, coming to the conclusion that some particular fact is true. But today, I'm, I'm going to be teasing out the ideas of, of how do faith and knowledge relate after you've come to faith, after you've placed your trust and belief in what God says. Do we even need knowledge anymore after that? Like, what's, what's the point? And so uh, we're just going to kind of be playing with these ideas of faith and knowledge and even perceived knowledge and just letting the scriptures illuminate them as we kind of pick each one up and consider the implications and the challenges that the scriptures would have for us that we would be willing to grow in what God calls us to do. And so here we go. Let's pick up in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, which is that summary passage about, actually it's got a few generations that are coming into play there. But Hebrews 11 verse 20, it says, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And so the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is in fact commending Isaac for having faith in this moment. Something that was in part pleasing to God. And yet we also know there was a whole bunch of complexity in that story. That was a very dysfunctional family that each of the members in that story were doing something wrong in that moment. But nonetheless, Isaac is commended for faith uh, that he invoked future blessings on his offspring. I wonder whether or not Isaac was thinking about the promise that God had made to Abraham. The fact that God had spoken about these distant offspring and over uh, 400 years of future history that was going to happen to them. And if Isaac was believing God, uh, that he was going to keep the promises that he made to his father Abraham. Let's, let's quickly read that. In Genesis 15, verse 13, uh, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation." For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so God had spoken that to Abram before he even had a son about the fact that there was this future hundreds of years uh, yet to be history that God had planned for them. And so when Isaac would have heard about the promises that God made to his dad about their offspring, I imagine, I imagine that he had faith. He believed that God would keep these promises. And I think that's part of the faith that is being commended here. Also, Hebrews 11 mentions multiple blessings, which is interesting. And Joe brought this point up too. 
right? That he blesses both Jacob and Esau, all right? And that's kind of unusual because when we read the account about his blessing over Esau, the majority of what he said seemed to be challenging, difficult, and uncomfortable. Like it was not uh, the kind of life that you would want for yourself. But nonetheless, the author of Hebrews considered it a blessing, that at the end of that outcome, right, he would actually kind of finally break free of the yoke of his brother. But what I want to point out about uh, blessings in general is that uh, this blessing wasn't somehow just wishful thinking. It was, it was different than a prayer, a request that was being made to God. I, Isaac couldn't just somehow speak a preferred future over his son Esau. No, what he was doing was near prophetic. It was something that was going to happen. It was being spoken in that moment uh, under God's inspiration. And as a result, what he said had to be true. It couldn't, he couldn't just disagree with this future outcome and be like, well, let me just say nice things about you. That's not how blessings in this moment seemed to work. What's interesting as well is that those are the two blessings that I think Hebrews is talking about, but in the next chapter, he does end up giving Jacob the Abrahamic blessing. He speaks those promises over his future. And in this case, when he believes and is blessing Jacob, the correct son, the one that he was supposed to bless the whole time, he does it with much more confidence. Check this out. Genesis 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of his daughters, of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojourners that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, to the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, to the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. All right, and so we definitely see in that later moment, after he's not so caught up in his carnal nature and his own desires and his own uh, desire to bless Esau because he brings him game from the field, right? He, he's actually able to do it with much greater confidence and faith, right? That he's actually, he mentions the name of Abraham in that blessing that, that he speaks over him. And so, so we can see that in that moment, in that blessing, he is obedient to God, right? He is doing the right thing. And in that moment, he isn't being deceived. He knows which son he's blessing. But that wasn't the case with the first blessing in Genesis 27, that he speaks over Jacob. That wasn't the case in that moment. Because in that blessing, Jacob was, I would argue, sinfully wrong. In his mind, he was blessing Esau the wrong son, even though Esau was the firstborn. He had known that God intended Jacob to be the promised son. 
And yet, even so, even though he was in part disobeying, di uh, disobeying and in that moment also being deceived, God was still recognizing faith in what he said about future generations. And so that's kind of interesting. This moment is certainly complex, and it certainly makes us wonder about what uh, he knew, what his motives were, right? Whether he knew these future events were coming. But it seems, at least, that he knew that God was going to keep these future promises, right? That he was able to speak this blessing over the future offspring of his children, believing that God would keep that promise. And, but it's interesting to consider, nonetheless, that he was expressing faith, believing God, and yet God allowed him to be wrong. God allowed him to be deceived in that moment, to misperceive reality, that he didn't have full knowledge of what was going on in that moment and in that process. He fell, uh, he also fell into believing, perhaps, that he might have known better than God in that moment. He might have thought like, yeah, I believe God will keep this promise to the future offspring, but I think I might know better right now. I'm going to pick the son that I want in order to bless him. He might have felt that he was clever. He might have thought that he was able to discern which of his sons was standing in front of him, setting up a series of tests, whether he was, you know, tasting the food or feeling the fur on his arm, right, or even smelling him from the field. He probably thought that he knew a lot, but he didn't. And yet, even in that lack of knowledge, faith was being expressed. And so you can see like these ideas that I'm playing with. In that moment, God allows him to be tricked, and the way he's tricked is by his own senses. And Joe hit on this a little bit as well. His sight was lacking, and it couldn't tell him the truth about which son stood before him. He heard the sound of a voice like Jacob. Yet he felt hairy like Esau, and he tasted the goat, but it was seasoned like wild game. He was drinking the wine, and so this, all of these senses are coming together to paint this picture and this reality that wasn't the case. And the last test was when he hugged Jacob, and he finally smells the clothes of Esau on him, and he smells like the field. And upon hearing and tasting and not quite seeing and, and smelling and all of these senses firing off, he ends up coming to the wrong conclusion and he's deceived. Isaac thought he knew the truth, but he was wrong. He had false knowledge. He thought he could trust his senses, but they led him astray. Because of what he perceived, he was able to be deceived. And what I want us to think about there in that moment is so often in our culture and generation, we identify ourselves and what is true based on what we sense and what we feel. And it's worth pondering in what ways do we allow ourselves to be deceived? In what ways do we allow our senses to entice us, our desires to drag us away and into sin? 
Do we give into, as Ephesians says, our deceitful desires? Do we surrender the war against our flesh and believe what our flesh is telling us instead of what the Spirit of God would be speaking in that moment? And so it's worth considering, right? In what ways do I trust my own senses rather than trusting the voice of the Spirit of God? Right? Because the life that believes God should believe the things he says, even when his commands are contrary to our own desires and our own perception. All right? The, the life of faith should not be a life that gives in to the deception of sin. What's also interesting about uh, Jacob, or sorry, Isaac being deceived by his senses is that many people today, materialists, believe that truth can only be known through what we can sense. And as a result, they may themselves fall prey to being deceived, just like Isaac was. But yet those senses we have, sometimes God can use to entice and draw us into himself to bring us to faith and belief in him, right? God gives us the ability to experience the good world that he's made with our bodies, with our senses. And God desires that we would seek him out, feel him out, that we would, as Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so God desires for us to be able to experience him in some capacity that would bring us to the point of faith, that, that, that we'd be at the point of trusting and believing what he says, that then other moments when our senses would betray us, we would believe the voice of our father. And so God allows Isaac to be wrong and he wants Isaac and us, right, to grow in knowledge. This is what I want us to think about. In Isaac's experience and commendation for his faith, right, he, he, has, he has faith that pleases God, and yet he's lacking knowledge. His faith is believing God and trusting what he says, and yet in that moment, he lacked full knowledge. He didn't understand everything that was taking place. And so when I'm thinking about faith and knowledge and considering those two things, just because we have faith doesn't mean we know everything. It doesn't mean we know everything about the this, this present situation that we find ourselves in. That yes, God may be pleased by my faith, but it's also possible to simultaneously lack wisdom or lack knowledge or to possibly even make foolish decisions. All right, Isaac had faith, which was pleasing, and likely he also was having a degree of disobedience in which he desired to bless his son Esau. And this is kind of interesting, right? Yet he's still commended for his faith in that moment. It's possible that some might walk away from that and think like, okay, so I guess like even if I do the wrong thing, or if I have the wrong motives, if somehow in that moment I have faith, maybe that's really all that matters. Maybe the fact that I'm sincere is the only thing that's important to God. But that's actually not the case. That's not the full reality. Does simply trying to do the right thing suffice? Is that good enough? 
Are our motives the only thing that really matters? Should we be content to do the wrong thing but pretend we're doing it for the right reasons? No. No, not really. Those things aren't good enough, right? That, that when we uh, reject what God would be speaking, when we reject the commands that he gives, uh, but we're like, well, but God really knows my heart and it's okay. Like, I think he'll still recognize that maybe I have a degree of faith and that's sufficient. That, that's dangerous territory because that sort of thinking comes with the degree of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's dangerous to live that way. And yet God does know our motives. God does see our hearts. In Hebrews 4, it says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That God is going to consider our motives and our intentions when it comes to judgment. All right? That, it, it does matter, but it's not sufficient. We still should seek to know the truth. We should seek to obey him according to what has already been revealed to us. Right? We shouldn't be content just to have some abstract version of faith of like, well, I believe in God. I'm just going to live my life as though he doesn't exist. I'm just going to live my own way. No, that's very, very dangerous living. Uh, Paul encounters in the city of Athens these people that were worshipping many gods and worshipping even something they called the unknown god. But Paul wasn't content to leave them in their lack of knowledge in their state, uh, uh, their status of sincerity, but ignorance, okay? Like, that wasn't good enough. Simply to just simply say, well, we tried to just, like, worship all the gods we could think of, and hopefully God will be pleased with that. No, no, no. Paul calls them out of that and invites them into the truth that they would worship the one true God. And so, in Acts 17, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects you worship, I found also an altar within this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. And so he invites them to know the God who made everything. And further on, he says that this God has determined and allotted the boundaries of their dwelling place. And he has determined that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. And then in verse 30, Paul tells them that the times of ignorance, lack of knowledge, God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn to him, to stop living life their own way and to trust in him. And so when Paul encountered uh, faith with ignorance, he wasn't content to leave them in it. He invited them into knowledge to know this God that they can worship 
to know the God that made them. Okay, he was not willing to leave them in just their sincerity. He invited them into knowledge. Another moment that I, I was thinking about when considering faith and knowledge and whether or not God is pleased in those moments was this story of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. This is when David is king and he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant, this representation of God's presence and blessing on all of Israel. They're bringing it up from this city towards the city of God. And there in verse 5, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. These, this ox cart was kind of dragging this ark along, right, bringing it to the next city. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And so what I want to point out is that he perhaps was somewhat sincere, right? He was in the crowd that was worshiping and singing songs to God. And as the ark was possibly going to fall over, he reached out to support it. And yet he was wrong to do so. In fact, they were carrying the ark the wrong way the whole time. It was supposed to be carried only by the Levites. And later on, David, in verse 9, he says, He was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And as a result of that question, David does end up seeking the truth. And he gains knowledge of the proper way to bring the ark of the God, the, the proper way to transport it. And as a result, right, they bring it in, into the city, and God's blessing is upon them. And so I just want to point out, like Uzzah, you might have argued as someone who had faith, but yet he was acting in a way of, uh, to a degree, disobedience. That David and the people were, in a, to a degree, disobeying the commands that God had already clearly given. And so, whether they had lack of knowledge or were ignoring it, their faith wasn't sufficient to please God in that moment. All right, and that doesn't necessarily mean that the judgment that Uzzah experienced was eternal judgment. It just meant that his choices, his actions, still had consequences in this life. All right, and so what I want to point out is that just because we've come to the place of faith does not mean that we should stop there. All right, we shouldn't be content to have faith but remain ignorant when God calls us to further knowledge of himself. In fact, think about in the book of Proverbs, David's son Solomon is a wise king, and he's writing wisdom to his son. All right, in Proverbs 1.7, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. <clears throat> that Solomon desired his son to be a follower of God. He desired that his son would fear the Lord, to have respect and reverence for him. But he doesn't just end the book there, right? No, he then continues to instruct and give his son wisdom, right? I don't want us to live by faith, but also as fools. 
and neither does God. And a loving father wouldn't want that for his kids either. And so it's a good thing when we come to faith, but we should not stop there. We should continue to seek the truth revealed in the scriptures that we could live wise on the earth. All right, God doesn't want us to remain foolish. God does not want us stumbling in sin and ignorance. God doesn't want his people to be gullible, to be caught up with every wind and wave of doctrine or to be caught up in conspiracy theories, possibly diluting the testimony that we proclaim about the truth, right? We don't want to be caught up in these things. But what's interesting here is that Solomon writes, he said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That when we come to the point in which we have respect for God, when we have faith in God, I would argue, when we believe the things that God says, that's where true knowledge begins. But it's not completed in that moment. That there's more knowledge to be attained. There's more wisdom to be experienced. That we should not stop at that first step of faith when we placed our trust in Jesus. No, we should continue on and grow in the knowledge of God. In fact, Jesus, when sending out his disciples in Matthew 10, 16, he said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That you could argue that these are commands from Jesus. Be wise. Be innocent. That not only did he want his disciples to have faith and to trust him and to teach the things that he spoke, but he also desired for them to be wise, to be shrewd, to be clever, to be aware of what's going on while remaining innocent and uh, unstained from the world, it says later on in the epistles. Okay, that Jesus would desire we have more than just faith, but we would also grow in knowledge and wisdom. <clears throat> we should grow in the knowledge of God, and that might seem at times to be this insurmountable task. In fact, in Romans 11, verse 33, Paul writes saying, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? It may at first seem overwhelming. Like how will I ever know in this life everything there is to know about God? And we won't, we won't. What we will know is sufficient for us to trust him and we can continue to learn more things about him as he has revealed through his word, through his spirit, through his son. And we shouldn't just give up the moment we've placed our trust in him. We should keep seeking him. We won't be disappointed. It's not as though we graduate the moment we place our trust in Jesus. We need to keep growing in the wisdom and the knowledge of God. God reveals himself to those who love him, that we will continue to discover more about who he is and who we are in him as we seek the truth of his word, as we grow together as, as, as a family of believers, right? We should desire to grow in this way.
In fact, just to further make this point, that faith does not cease knowledge, right? That just because we have faith doesn't mean we should be content to ignore desiring any knowledge about God. In the church of Colossae, Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes them. And he says this in verse 3, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Okay, that as a result of them hearing that they've placed their faith in Jesus, they've come to the moment of salvation, right? Paul is rejoicing. Paul is praying for them. But he doesn't treat them as though like, all right, I guess you're done. All right, I, I, I guess that, you know, I'll see you in eternity. I'll see you in heaven. Have a good life and go and just do your own thing until then. No, that's not what Paul does. That's not what he desires. In verse 9, he continues, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Okay, so from the day they heard that they placed their faith in Christ, what does Paul pray for them? He says, he asks that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. That he's praying that, yes, they've already come to faith in Christ. They've already experienced salvation, but now Paul is ceaseless in his prayers for this church, that they would continue to be filled with the knowledge of God's will for their lives, right? That they would be uh, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and that this knowledge is not fruitless knowledge, it results in change. He says, verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so, so look at this, okay? The knowledge that he wants for them. He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of his will and to be increasing in the knowledge of God. That they've already had faith. And we know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But, and they've already got that. But Paul says to them in, in verse 10 that when they are filled with this kind of knowledge of his will, right? When they are increasing in the knowledge of God, then they will walk in a manner worthy. Then they will be fully pleasing to God. Okay, that yes, faith pleases God. But God wants us to grow in our knowledge of him. He does not want us to remain where we are. He wants us to seek his scriptures and the truth about him, right? He wants us to grow in these things because it's going to change the way we live. We'll live differently. We'll walk worthy of what he's already done, the work he's already accomplished, that sacrifice on the cross that we've already placed our faith in, right? We will now live worthy of what Jesus has done for us. And so Paul spent a lot of time praying for this church that they would be filled and increasing in the knowledge of God. And it's not just Paul. In fact, Peter writes about this as well, where he's like, hey, you have faith? That's, that's great. Don't stop there. Do not simply stop at the step of faith. Keep going. All right, Peter says this in 2 Peter 1, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Okay, and so, so notice, 
faith is the initial step, you might say, in this moment, that, that Peter's like, hey, okay, you've got faith, that's awesome, but don't stop working, right? Don't stop striving in certain ways, right? Make every effort to supplement your faith. And what kind of things do we supplement our faith with? With virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, right? There's the same idea as Paul. He's like, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, and I want you to be increasing in the knowledge of God, right? He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that Peter mentions in that list is that we would supplement to our faith, that we would make every effort to supplement to our faith, knowledge. That knowledge is one of those things that we should add to our lives, that we should seek with a degree of effort in order to be fruitful in our lives, that we should be increasing in this. So it's not a matter of we did it once and now we've arrived. No, it has to do with a perpetual, increase in our lives, that we spend the rest of our lives learning about who God is and what he calls us to do, that this is how we are effective and fruitful, that Peter argues that without these things that you'll be ineffective, that you'll be unfruitful, or as Paul was saying, you won't be fully pleasing to God. And so this is something that is worth pursuing. Peter then later on in 2 Peter 3, 18, he says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And so as a, a apostolic command to the church, he tells us, right? I've got one of my kids yelling downstairs to grow in grace. Okay, so it's not just about like this hard line, grow in knowledge, hit the book sort of thing. Like, no, we grow in grace. God's mercies are available to us every day and we're going to need it. But no, also grow in the knowledge of the Lord. That yes, we know enough about him to trust him. That's where our faith begins. But we don't stop there. We keep growing until the day of eternity. Okay, and so throughout the rest of our lives, we need to make every effort to do that. We need to be a part of the family of God. We need to spend time in the scriptures. We need to spend time worshiping God together, perhaps with our families or with other believers in Bible studies and life groups. That we are to spend the rest of our lives seeking the knowledge of God. That we're not done. That Jesus wants us to live with wisdom. And even though I'm, I'm making this significant, uh, urgent plea with you to grow in knowledge, I want to point out that knowledge isn't everything. Paul says it this way. He's actually playing with both the concepts of knowledge and faith in 1 Corinthians 13. And he says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all 
mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, then I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And so what Paul points out is that faith and knowledge are different things, and that even if you had all knowledge and all faith, that those two things added together are nothing if you're lacking the love of God in your life, if you're lacking love for brothers, right? That Actually, that's where Peter ended as well. Remember when we read about all those things we supplement, right? He ends with brotherly love and with brotherly uh, affection, right? Add to that love. And so faith and knowledge are different things, right? God wants us to know who he is. He wants us to know his character. He wants us to know these things. But when those things are full and lacking love, it's insufficient. Okay, and so Paul desired the church to grow in those things. Peter desired the church to grow in those things. But we do so with love. Let's see. And what's interesting is Paul didn't make it his objective to have all knowledge or to even have all mysteries revealed to him. Right? He prioritizes love over knowledge, and when it comes to knowledge, the thing he prioritizes is knowing Jesus. Okay, In 1 Corinthians 2, he said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That Paul recognized that, that knowing Jesus is the ultimate knowledge to seek after, the thing that will ultimately satisfy him. That's the thing that he desires. That's the thing that he pursues. And so I realize this is like quite the tangent from the story of Jacob and Esau and Isaac in this moment of blessing, this moment of faith, this moment of disobedience and deception and misperception, right? But nonetheless, I want us to think about the relationship that God calls us to, the faith that pleases God, and that that faith Isaac had, but yet he didn't know everything in that moment, and he was making poor choices, and he was being deceived. And in this story of Isaac blessing Jacob, this son who should have had the blessing, but was deceiving his father, there's actually this interesting parallel that I want to point out, which is imperfect as an analogy. But it's interesting for us to ponder. In Colossians 2, verse 3, Paul writes, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That when we place our faith in Christ, we are hidden in Him. That's kind of interesting language, but I want to parallel it to this story in this way. As Jacob was disguised as Esau, and received the blessing of his older brother, we are hidden in Christ. We receive his blessing and inheritance. That it's kind of this interesting idea that, that instead of God seeing our sin and our wickedness and rebellion, he chooses to see Christ's righteousness. That when he looks upon us, when he embraces us, we are the righteousness of God in Christ. 
And this isn't to say that we're somehow tricking God or deceiving him. No, because he is intentionally doing this. This is by his design. And it's not as though Jesus is like Esau, reluctant and grieved to have given up this blessing. No, we are joint heirs with Christ and he was glad to lay down his life to make forgiveness and salvation and eternal life available to us. All right, what's interesting in that story is Jacob, he feared, he feared that he would be exposed, that his father would find out and he would receive a curse. And this is contrasted to how we encounter God, right? Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they hid from God. And yet what we do, when we are hidden in Christ, we must be willing to confess our sin, to acknowledge before God the wrong that we've done, that we make it plain before him. We, we recognize that we are sinners in need of a savior, that instead of trying to hide in order to avoid a curse, which we can't even do because Hebrews said our hearts and our intents and our thoughts and our motives are fully exposed to before him and all of us will give an account to him. So it's not as though we could hide our sin anyway. But yet when we choose to confess it, to reveal it, to expose it to God, he makes a way possible for us to be forgiven, for us to be made right. And so... What I want to point out is that if we confess our sins, if we repent, as Paul called the people in Acts 17 in the city of Athens, if we turn to Jesus and trust in him, we can be hidden in him. We can be forgiven. We can find mercy. We can live each day growing in grace as well as growing in knowledge. And so in regards to our righteousness, we are gifted Christ's righteousness when we place our faith in him. And when we go before the Father, we appear as holy. We appear to him as, as Christ, hidden in Christ, that we can boldly go to our Father and receive mercy and grace in time of need. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord God, that, Lord, you know the hearts of the people that are hearing your word this morning. And, and we covered a vast array of scriptures today and different ideas. But I know, Holy Spirit, that you reveal to us the things that we need to hear. That you expose the sin in us that we need to repent of. And that you draw us to the Father that we would experience relationship and mercy and grace in him. And so I pray that those who have not yet placed their trust in Jesus, that you would call them, that you would speak to them, reveal to them your word and your plan for salvation in Christ, that they would know that you are good, that they would taste and see that you are good, that they would take hold of this salvation you give by faith, and that you would be pleased in that step. I pray, Lord, that those who have already made that choice, that, Lord, we would be challenged by what we heard today. That, Lord, we would realize that many times we become stagnant in our pursuit of the truth and we're just content to live our lives anticipating this future eternity, but living here among the earth, focused on the things of this world. I pray, God, that you would inspire us, put a 
inspire in us a desire to seek first your righteousness and your kingdom, that we would be a people who study your word, God, that we would continue to gather by faith as a, an assembly of believers, that we would listen to your word, that we would be equipped by one another and, and the giftings that you've given your church, Lord God, that we would be a people that grow, are filled, are increasing in knowledge about you and knowledge that would not be fruitless, Father. Lord, I know and I confess my own heart and its contentment with facts and knowledge. But Lord, I pray that you would call us to action, that we would be a people who bears fruit because of the knowledge we know, because of the things that you've given and gifted us, Lord God, that we would bring this message of hope that we know is true to this world, to this community around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We love you guys. Uh, come join us in the Zoom afterwards. Obviously, we hit a whole bunch of verses today. And you might be thinking of, you might have had verses come to your own memory that, that you're like, wow, this also explains or reveals, or this would bring greater clarity on what Brian had brought up today. And I'd love to hear that because I certainly don't have all knowledge about God. So yeah, come join us. Come be a part of our Zoom fellowship. I'll post the link below and we'll all jump in right after this video is done. So take care.